Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Welcome back to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Um, we are getting close to 100 episodes now. I can't believe how fast this journey has been going. I've had some really interesting interviews over that time, and we've had quite a number of solo shows as well. But this week, we've got an interview. We've got a really great guest on. Jay, Jay, I actually met only very recently during a tour day we did, but he's got such a great story about a sector of retail that I just thought we've got to share this experience with you. So, Jay, welcome to the welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Hi, Jerry. Great to meet you again. Jay, just give us a little bit of a background as to where you've come from and your retail experiences, because this podcast is going to be a little bit about um, retail, but almost more in-depth than that. It's going to be about the charity sector. But let's just talk mm-hmm. about a little bit about your background and how you've got those experiences and got where you are now? Yeah, well, Jerry, I've worked in retail for over 30 years, uh, from high street over to charity retail. And over the years, I've progressed from uh, area manager to regional manager to a director. And it's been really fascinating to understand the complexities of what makes a business profitable and not profitable, and the journey that you take with landlords regarding commercial properties. Yeah. And you've, and interestingly, your CV is not about I've managed a shop. And then I've gone into managing operations. It's much wider than that from sales. It's almost like you were the, I guess, the area of business development or the area of business manager. So that you covered all sorts of things, including the acquisitions of new units, which is what we're going to talk about. But some of your business background is really quite interesting. I think when you, you know, I've worked for a national organisation, so I worked for Imperial Cancer Research Fund that later became Cancer Research UK. And when you work for a national organisation like that, your role will be very different from when you work for a small local-based organisation that's a charity. So then when I worked at Chest Hansbrook, Scotland, that was a man of many hats, from acquiring properties to managing a new product business to recruiting training staff, creating your strategy and your vision. Because in that charity sector, it ultimately ultimately is about what is your USP. Uh, an organization, when you're working for a small charitable organization, the cause can be quite important. And if people don't know who you are and what you stand for, it's very difficult. Yeah, you, you can need, get lost. Yeah, you, you, you can. And you, and you need to look at when you look at charity shops on the high street. You know, for me, there's three different segments. My, my career has all been based on pound profiling and segmentation. So when you look at your, you know, your mid-market charity shops, your British Heart, your Cancer Research, your Bernardo's, they do it and they do it amazingly well. It's a national model delivered throughout the whole UK. Then you look at your small hospices that generally deliver in one community. Um, and then you look at your, your traditional charity shops. And then you look at your top end, your Mary's Living and Giving. You know, what is the brand that you want to be and how do you make sure that can happen? And that can be quite a challenge because you can't compete with some of those big national players on brand alone. Yeah, for sure. 
And and let's just give us a let's just do a little bit of context here. When you started with the charity, the turnover was about a million. Is that correct? Yeah. And, so, and when you finished, just just go through that journey. What what, yeah. what did you start yeah, so, with, so, and where did you finish up? So basically, I, I ended up falling back into the charity sector again in in two thousand and ten after the um, the financial crash, and um, didn't really want to do that, but I did, and it was for an organisation uh, that had nineteen stores. Of the nineteen stores, it was a one point two million pound turnover. Of the 19 stores, two stores delivered 50% of the chain's net profit. No brands, no USP, really off pitch, no investment. Leases weren't all FRI. There was some IRO, some FRIs. There was no asbestos testing. There was nothing in place. So you're talking about an off pitch brand with no USP. And we also, we attracts a different type of donated stock and volunteer. And it's kind of like people didn't really know who the brand was and what it stood for. Yeah. So to transfer it forward to 10 years, uh, took it to a business of a turnover of about 4.5, 4.6 million pounds. Uh, and along the Christmas card business, we took that from um, 10,000 packs of Christmas cards a year to over 100,000 packs of Christmas cards. We spoke a lot last week about Scotland and how proud you are of being Scottish. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, 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 and for me, it's exactly that same model. When you look at the Christmas card market, it's densely populated. Everybody's doing it. So we've done everything that was Scottish, yes. you know, Fourth Railbridge, uh, Tartan. And, you know, we outperformed Cancer Research and Oxfam on sales per units. So how many units did you end up with? You, so you started off with how many and how many did you finish with? Yeah, so I, I started with 19. I ended up closing 11 and I ended up with around about 45 kind of pre-COVID. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but for me, but when you look at the market, Jerry, it was about, again, segmentation. So that business model was about, I had some boutiques, your boutique, affluent city centre suburb, affluent market town, 1,200 square foot retail, Bridge of Allen, Morningside, Stockbridge, Davidson's Mains. And then I would have discount stores around about 3,000 square foot in places like Cowdenbeef, Leven. So you're actually starting to tailor your product to suit your market. That's when I taught you about town profiling and segmentation. Yeah. Absolutely crucial. Because again, when you look at the risk to any business, you're mitigating the risk through two very different business models. Um, and the discount stores right now are apparently doing fantastically well. Boutique stock less well because of that market change. Okay, that's fab. And we've opened up a whole lot of things to discuss there. And it's, it's just worthwhile reminding ourselves that most of the audience um, have either got a small commercial or one or two commercial mm -hmm. or they're trying to get into this market. And the reason I wanted to bring you on the podcast really was to talk about being a customer of mm -hmm. that market, but also I think just to dispel some of the myths around how charities operate and what their, um, I guess, the contribution is to the high street. And interestingly, um, before we came on, I was just saying, you know, I, I, I feel that maybe there's a perception that charities tend to be at the lower end of town. They tend to have really? an offer that's maybe not quite um, as high as the landlord might want it to be. And that sometimes it helps with business rates and things like that. But actually, what you've just described as a charity or as an yep. operation is 100% yep. a business with all the usual things that you would expect in there in terms of KPIs, market mm. demographics, all mm. that sort of thing. I mean, it's a proper professional outfit. And by the time you finished, that number of stores and also a profit of, was it about 1.2 million for, yeah. the, for yeah. the business, which ultimately yeah. is what it's all about, giving back. So it's really interesting to, to try and, I guess, change some people's perceptions of what charities offer but equally what that might mean for landlords. So mm -hmm. could you just describe the model? Because you didn't just go out and find a unit 
to rent off a landlord, you actually took a step further back from that. When you did your demographics, you worked out a market that you needed to be in. You actually went even further and actually went and found the unit. Maybe you could just go through that description yeah, rather than me yeah, taking yeah. it all from you. Yeah, of, of course, Jerry. So, so my, my first interaction with landlords was back in, what, 1999, I think it was, when I'd, I'd, I'd never come across commercial property before. And I started to look at my bottom line and what would significantly grow value. And I couldn't believe that at that time, landlords were getting a 25-year lease, full repairing and insuring, but only rent reviews of that blood flipping heck that's <laughs> that's an awful lot and this was in Berwick upon Tweed and I met the landlord because I was looking at my management accounts thinking how can I drive my profit it's not just about sales how can I cut my costs yeah. and then this landlord told me about his property portfolio and how much money he'd made over the years and I thought shocking so roll forward now so it's 2010 and I've got this job and it was like Jay just grown up go and open up some shops okay so what's a USP where do you want to be? Where's your donor base? Don't mind, just get some shops and get some money in. So it was really down to me to think, where will I generate the best return on an investment and best profit, which is generally the more affluent towns, better quality towns generally donate better quality stock because there's more money kicking about. Yep. The, the only framework I had was your rent can only be £10,000 a year and your fit out can only be ten grand a year. I thought, okay, that doesn't sound like a lot. So I was in Linlithgow. It was 2010. I was looking at a Victoria wine shop. Uh, they'd obviously went bust a couple of years before, unit had been empty, it was in really bad condition, was chatting to the guy at DM Hall, and I said, oh, the fit-out's going to be 30k, and I can't afford 30k. Have you got any ideas what we can do? So have you got 30k? <laughs> and, he, and he said... Don't ask me, don't get... Exactly, exactly, exactly. He said, no, I don't, but I know a man that might. Fantastic. So I was introduced to this gentleman called Brian Falconer, an amazing guy, actually, who's a landlord who has got 80 properties in and around Falkirk, Gen Falkirk area type of thing, West Lothian as well. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. I actually got to meet the landlord. Uh, he agreed to do the shop fit. We agreed a standard 10-year lease, break option at year five. With my heads of terms, I always exclude latent inherent defects. I always cap my rents and I cap my liability in any one year. So I'm not spending more than three grand if I need to on external works. So that worked really well. And one of the reasons that I'd done that, Jerry, was I inherited a portfolio of 19 shops. And I had a shop in Aberdeen, Rosemount. And somebody, my previous colleague, had taken on a full repairing and insuring lease. And there was a £14,000 bill for a roof repair. And I couldn't get out of that. Yeah. So quite quite early on, I got to think I need to cap my liabilities here. And my heads of terms would always be capping liabilities, excluding latent and inherent defects, because I got caught with wet rot in Haddington. But that was one of my leases, so I was safe. So, so the journey started with, I need to get this business from A to B, you know, have a great covenant and landlords have a great covenant, been established 50 years, £3 million in the bank. We're always going to pay the rent but I need you to do that fit out. And that's where the journey started in 2010. And that landlord, he would only invest 80 to 100K, 120K on a shop. We ended up doing about eight or nine shops and he ended up spending nearly a quarter of a million pounds on a shop for me. But I treated his money as my money. I would spend 60 to 80K on a shop fit. He'd come to the shop opening. I'd send him the photographs and said, look at what we've done with your investment. He'd know how profitable the site was. So we, we, we engaged quite, quite quickly. So what you effectively ended up doing was working out where you needed the requirement, sourcing mm -hmm. the property, mm -hmm. bringing in the investor to buy the property, and then with, I guess you would have standard documentation by then, bringing in the lease, 
and then renting the property from the landlord. So, I mean, you you were taking the bull by the horns and organising it all. What, what was the typical sort of return on investment for the landlord? What did you guys agree on that well, rate? Well, well I, I suppose every deal would vary because there's another landlord I'd work with that would have a slightly different scenario. So, for example, I would really know where I would want to be in a town. So I knew I wanted to be in Dunfermline and I wanted to be in Eastport. I knew that Santander branch was going to be closing. So I physically phoned the Santander got them in touch with the landlord. He would purchase the unit at a price that worked for him. But I would tell the landlord, I can pay you 25K, but I need a 15 to 20K cash investment on that property. And then the landlord would be able to work out where his return yeah, was. Okay, yeah. So he really went and negotiated, knowing that he had a client, a mm. client ready to mm. move in and what the expenditure would be. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, great, but, but, great but, but set, that, I think. But, but that was that was one landlord and his business model was buy, retain landlord, yes. buy, retain tenant. I'd have another landlord that I would work with that would buy volume, 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 would buy a vacant unit, put us in there, give us quite a large cash sum, completely cover shop fit and sell us straight on. And he would make his value through charity in there, 10-year lease, break year five, break covenant. So he would make an awful lot of money doing that. Generally, in the Kilmarnocks, Carlukes, that the hard-pressed areas. Yeah. You, so, so if 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 somebody listening to this is thinking about retail and they're looking at the retail sector right now and thinking about units that they could maybe invest in, because certainly when I got started in commercial, I thought really, you know, the only sort of thing I'm going to be able to access is a high street shop or a small industrial unit, not really knowing how how wide mm-hmm. and varied the market mm-hmm. is. But if they were looking at retail, what are your thoughts about how they could maybe find charities that work in the same way or how they should maybe Look at the segmentation of charities. You know, have you well, got any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, there's two things, uh, and I think it's um, earlier on. There's an, there's an organisation that charities are all members of that's called the Charity Retail Association, and they produce lots of figures. Uh, they can pro- they produce weekly figures and quarterly figures looking at the sales performance of the sector. So the sector measures its performance on year before last figures. So the sector is running at 11 percent growth on the year before last. That's 4,000 charities that collect all figures together. So significantly stronger than the high street. Uh, There's membership at the Charity Retail Association. And there's often, there's a conference every year that I often present at. And there's also quarterly meetings as well. But it is about that networking, really, I suppose. Um, You know, right now, a charity is looking at opening shops. Generally not. Um, Some of the big players are looking at doing the out of town. So Cancer Research are doing the 10,000 square foot sites on the outskirts and working fantastically well for them significantly high rents and high liabilities um but some of the little players it has gone quite quiet i know when i spoke to a lot of landlords recently um they've been doing more localized deals versus national deals yeah that's what i was going to ask you so the, that that segmentation really is the the national brands are clearly yeah. um businesses that are i've got a good covenant behind them some of the more local ones what what are some of the things that maybe potential landlords need to be thinking about in terms of how those are operated Uh, maybe some of the kpis they need to be looking at themselves as a landlord well there's two or three challenges versus national to local and this is what really got me ahead of the game is when i was going to look at a site i knew british art might be looking at that same site i would meet the landlord provisionally agree the heads of terms there and that's the deal done within a week when you are dealing with a national charitable organisation, it might be the area manager that looks at it, then the head of retail, then the surveyor looks at it, and, and the time frame can be significantly longer. Um, every charitable organisation will have a different spec. So 
For example, if you go on a British Heart Foundation website, they'll be very transparent that they want a shop that's 10 foot length, 800 retail, 400 non-retail, needs to be on a busy high street. Uh, every charity will be different. It's significantly easier dealing with the local charities versus the national charities, but it depends on your sector. So I know there's one colleague I'd work with quite closely where she would just take on vacant shops and not pay any rent from a rates liability point yeah. of view. There's, yeah. no money in, there's no money in that from a landlord. So when I was looking at a deal that didn't work for me, I'd say, there you go, Sue, there's a deal for you. You're getting a unit for nothing. Uh, it's, it, it is about looking at the high street and looking at who's growing and who's moving and what's happening, Jerry. Um, and when I look at the sector at the moment in Scotland, um, I, I've not seen an awful lot of movement in Scotland. Is there, obviously, these guys all operate in a slightly different way, but is there some yes. common common requirements you would say that charities are looking for across retail stock so a landlord for instance might is, is parking is an issue is there a okay. particular size of unit is there a particular I, I, length of you know what, what are the components I, there that might be similar i, I suppose what it's about and, and and i made a comment about this earlier it's about putting yourself in the shoes of the customer or that that journey so for example as we spoke about earlier on you know uh, a shop, a charity shop needs drop off. So if there's not a loading bay outside or if it's double yellow lines, you're not going to get your bags of stock over the door. One bag of stock is worth £20. You know, you generally will need 800 square foot retail, 400 square foot retail. But it, it can, it can, it's driven by location, Jerry. If you were to set up a charity tomorrow, you would set up a hospice for children or for animals because that will get you that best return on investment. And that's their criteria. Some charities might want to open a shop only where they operate a service. Yeah. Uh, some charities might only operate in a really, you know, Chas would only operate in a really tight geographical area. Ardgown Hospice, Hospice would only open in around the Greenock area. So it's very, very different. Different. It's about, it's about, I suppose, from a landlord's point of view, what's your area? What do you know? And go and chat to your local charity. Okay. So what we got there was, um, I was interesting stats, stock about 20 quid a bag, drop-off important. Did yeah. you say 400 or 800 square foot or somewhere in there? No, I would say normally around 800 square foot retail. Yes. 400 square foot non-retail. Ah, okay. All right. Ideally, so, it's great if you've got a back door as well. But again, every charitable organisation is slightly different. So for example, I, I spoke to you about, I, I opened a shop in Dundee on Reform Street. You can't drop off there. But that was a discount shop and I was driving um, low-grade stock to that from other sites. I knew I'd never get a stock there, but I was buying footfall. Interesting. Yeah, okay, and bringing it from other sites, yeah. So, so, it, it, so that for me, the key is truly understanding somebody's business model before you can give them what you want. Because some landlords are like, last resort, I'd get an email, oh, I've got a shop in Moffat, are you interested? But not. Yeah. Because they don't understand the complexities of the business, really. Yeah, and, and so based on the sort of numbers we're talking about there, if somebody has a unit that's, 2,000 or 3,000 square foot, that might not necessarily be something that a charity would be interested in. Well, it, it depends. So, you know, I opened a, a boutique in Kelso at 2,500 square foot because the rent was only 30K. You've got a bigger store. You can generate the profit. So it's, it's driven by lots of different things. So I, I'm really mindful you're trying to get me to a real, you know, what does the criteria look like and every business case. Of course. Different. Of course it is, yeah. And it's really just... It's trying to say, look, there are some loose parameters here, mm -hmm. and and it's certainly more complex than I think people reckon that it is for charities. And that, as you mentioned, it isn't just about finding a charity that necessarily is just going to pay business rates, but be on a short term license. It's about um, getting much longer term leases, maybe with some breaks. And at the moment, is the ten year or the five year break? Uh, certainly, that was the strategy you were using. Is that 
comparable across the industry? Um, well, it's changed again, and some yeah, of the of bigger players uh, are, are announcing they want to break option every year. Wow. So yes. Basically, a license. <laughs> <laughs> in a nutshell and, and that's a one what that's one big national charity retailer is doing that and it's kind of again you know it's all about supply and demand and yeah. what was interesting is you know it took me four years to get a shop in bridge of allen uh i could walk down to Cody high street and get a shop any day of the week so yes. i know i'd have to pay a premium there i might not get me 800 square foot i might only get 600 square foot but guess what it'll not be 20 quid a bag of stock it'll be 40 quid a bag yeah so so, so jay if somebody wanted to find out um, specifically chest, heart and stroke Scotland, what they're looking for. Um, is that going to be publicly available anywhere on the website? Was that something you um, published or did you guys just go out and do it yourself? Well, when I worked uh, at chest, heart and stroke Scotland, I would actively have a plan and a budget to work towards. Yes. Obviously, since COVID, they're not actually looking at fire yeah. sites. So basically, with an awful lot of charities, they all have their reserves and there's been an awful lot of reserves spent during lockdown uh, and the outcomes of opening stores in the smaller charities are relatively slim. Yeah. But again, every charity is different. You know, I, I'm a, a trustee for another charity that's got reserves of in excess of £40 million. It, it's very difficult to, to, to general generalise it, really. Or, you of know, Br British Heart Foundation are always opening and closing shops all the time, but they want a good deal. Yeah, yeah, they're constantly for a good deal. Okay. Typical lease length we've spoken about at the moment. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's changed a little bit and does depend on who it is. And the thing about having a short-term license or lease is the charity is also in a slight predicament because a landlord may find somebody else at the end of that period that says, I want something longer. And in Scotland, you know, you're able to do that. In England, there's slightly more tighter yes. rules around yes. offering um, the current tenant extension of the, the lease. But I think if, if somebody's investing for... Um, the longer term, they're going to want to try and get that FRI lease, yeah. or at least a lease that's got a longer period of time in it. And the break clauses, I guess, are something that's going to be varying right now. But when COVID has passed, or at least has got to a point where life continues to some kind of normality, those, those timeframes may start moving out again. Some of those charities may grow, some of them may not. But it's interesting that your... See, I, I talk a lot about trying to work out what the market wants and where the supply demand issues are. And what yes. you described there about Bridge of Allen is, well, actually, it may be that it was a struggle to find a unit, but equally for landlords, they might have been struggling to understand who might want space. But by adding in the dimension about charities coming in as a proper business and taking space and looking at a town that you've maybe got a unit in, is there potential here to get a charity that's going to benefit from this unit and benefit the landlord, is there, what, what would be the best way, I guess, of approaching the charities? Because I, I mentioned there sometimes people will put on their website, oh, we're looking for units in X, Y, and Z. What's, what's the best way to actually reach these guys? Is it through the, the overall umbrella organisation to find out who they all are? What, what would you suggest, Jay? Well, again, it, it always gets back to the, the networking and, and the relationships and what that individual charity wants. And it's about, you know, who is that head of retail? Who is that director of retail? Who is the fundraising manager in that organisation? And can I engage with them? I mean, I would often have people contact me that would have a unit or, again, once I suppose once I built my relationship with my landlord, I would say to them, right, this shop, 344 Morningside Road, really, really profitable. I want the shop next door. Can you buy me the shop next door to drive my profitability? So, and then landlord B would buy that and then would re-gear the leases to, to work, work with that yeah. landlord. Um, 
it, it's, it's just it's just about following the sector. And if somebody is really committed and passionate and wanting to do something for the charity sector, it is about engaging with your chosen charity choice and engaging with that organization. Yeah. The other key things, what, what always amazed me was it, when um, I'd have one landlord that would buy a site, put us in and then sell us straight on or keep us for a year or two. And what always amazed me from a due diligence point of view is new landlords would come along, they would buy the shop and they would not even ring me to say, are you staying in there or are you going to break that lease? You know, which is a slightly different way of getting into the charity sector as well. Yeah, it's interesting. And from a listener point of view, you might be thinking, right, well, how do I find a J? <laughs> how do I find a J that's wanted to grow and is willing to work with a landlord? And, you know, crikey, what a great situation to be in. A customer saying, can you buy me this building, please? And the and best price it. you can get and here's the money I'm going to pay it. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, and, and and also what I'd done again with the Dunfermline site, I'd have to work around my budget. So, you know, Brian said, Right, Jeff, I've got it, but I've got to pay for it in January. I said, Oh, Brian, my budget doesn't happen until April, but let's do a license to occupy for three months. You're not paying for the rates I am because I want the unit, you know. So it's treating, it, it's keeping them really close, but building a relationship yes. together. So it is It is a lot about that networking and building up relationships. As you say, yeah. it's not black and white, I'm afraid. And that's why it takes time in the commercial sector to get really good at it. But interestingly, what you're talking about there is niching. There's no doubt about it. It's a niche. Definitely. And, and you know, you mentioned about really struggling to get um, commercial property agents to take you seriously. So I think I'd mentioned to you before I was trying to get units with Scott Mid, uh, two units, two separate commercial property agents. Nobody was answering my call. So I just, Phone Scott Mid directly, went into Scott Mid, and I arranged a meeting with a property manager and done the deal. Yeah. I've been waiting for a unit for such a long time in that town. Don't Sorry, ask, you don't get. No, 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 it, it's great. It's called it's a sledgehammer ask. approach. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, I mean, some people will sit back and just think, well, look how terrible it all is, and and, and it's not working, and nobody wants to be in the commercial mm -hmm. market. But actually, sometimes you just gotta roll your sleeves up and get on with it. Well, I want to ask you now. With all that experience you've gained there, what is your next thoughts about commercial? Because I know that you're you're out of that business now. You're you're still carrying on some work with the sector, but but what is it you're actually trying to do from because you want to start investing in commercial? In fact, you have got some units, but you want to develop that portfolio. Yes. What 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 are your plans going forward? And and are you focusing in on that niche or are you thinking about more wider context? Well, two or three things, really. Uh, and, and again, I exited uh, Chestnut Store last year and it gave me time. I was in a fortunate position where I didn't need to go and find another job straight away. And it gave me time to really, truly understand my why, my journey and where I was going. Yep. Um, so I started to explore opportunities, came across SaaS as one option, uh, which is great. And I've now been exploring opportunities, looking at, there's a thing called CMO, Jerry. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> And, it's and, why we've met, yeah. Yay! <laughs> and, and, and for me, it's about we, we've got our pension money and we need to make this work really, really hard. So I am looking at what can I do to con continue to drive our homes for homeless families. We've yeah. got a goal to deliver 100 houses for homeless families. And the second thing is the commercial property market. I want to get in amongst this. And, and what does that look like for me? So the CMO has been really interesting. Looking at commercial to residential in Edinburgh is very expensive. But I'm now, I had a great day with you last week, truly trying to understand town profiling segment segmentation with trying to take my retail head off, yes. but keep a little bit of there and learn lots from others. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that when you do niche, 
and I, and I guess I have, I have to keep asking myself this as well when you when you niche is am I missing other opportunity here because if you're trying to create a building first approach I find the problem buildings and then really develop a, a, a unique offer that's going to be the best uh, return on that building you need to understand other options don't you whether it mm. is retail mm. and and for mm. me mixed mm. use development really is is one of the areas that I really want yeah. to focus yeah. in on yeah and yeah. because some buildings will have retail on the ground floor and they will have an opportunity for some kind of I guess residential whether it is yeah. service apartment or whatever but also office space workspace and all the all the other lovely stuff and and those types of buildings apart from um having complexities around the layout and the fact that maybe you can't move certain walls and maybe slightly older it also offers you an opportunity to get involved in a really interesting project but Definitely. but it's but it's trying to make sure that they are sustainable it's not just for your interest's sake and you get to be able to think i made yeah. no bloody money here it's got yeah. to be sustainable yeah. hasn't it because we're just going in there to yeah. get get things moving but ultimately we may not be the person who looks after it in years to come of course of course when, when and that's that's where I'm at at the moment. So I, you know, I always knew I wanted to shop in Bodwell or Bridge of Allen. It might make me two or three, three years to get it. I'd know every shop on the high street. I'd know the passing rents. I'd know the customer profile, the donor profile. I knew who the audience was. And it was fascinating to go around to look at some of the work that you've done. I'm thinking, oh my God, he's got a hairdresser in what looks like an office. <laughs> and you, 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 you took me to, to Glen Rothis and I said, what the hell have you done about here? It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I didn't understand your model and it's yeah. fascinating because because any business for me it's all time profiling segmentation who's the customer yeah and and when we spent an awful lot of time looking in going off it's like wow this man isn't mad <laughs> he knows this stuff I appreciate that thanks for putting that on here <laughs> it was really really powerful because it, it, it's 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 similar to any business isn't it it's, it's it's supply demand and what you're offering yeah yeah, there's more to it, isn't there? There's more to it than just buying a unit and uh, yes. shoving somebody in it. Yes. And, the, and the thing yes. is, the more intricate it is, the more opportunity there is to Hugely. make a better margin rather than just a standard, I'm going to do an FRI lease and walk away and go and get the next one. Yeah. There's so much more value add you can do as long as you can work out the supply and demand piece. Definitely. And, and that's one thing that you, I suppose my journey from residential property you know you know there's always a ceiling as to how much how much you can get your return on investment commercial property you know you can do so much more but guess what there's greater risk but with no risk there's no return yes you know and you know the the, the risk is how you measure that risk and that's why i'm engaging with you further jerry you're my yeah. risk you're my risk manager risk manager <laughs> sounds very risky right yes. okay so Jay, let's just wrap up a couple of questions yes. here to finish off. Um, I've really enjoyed our time together. So let me just ask you, for those that are listening, um, what are three kind of tips you'd maybe give them from the perspective of finding those properties? So we're wearing lots of hats here, aren't we, Jay? There's, yes. there's a, we're, we're, we're a charity and we're moving as an occupant. We're talking about landlords. We're talking about finding and sourcing buildings. Which tips would you give from that early stage when you started getting involved in commercial for a customer for Chest Heart and Stroke Scotland? What what are the tips that you would suggest to people that are thinking about investing in properties that might suit that type of business? Any sort of things, and especially when it comes down to actually just sourcing deals and dealing with commercial agents, was anything from that time that you think, oh, if only I knew that then, I maybe have done that differently? Yeah, I look at it because it, it it crosses over so many different elements of work that I work on. And for me, it's always about network. 
no matter what it is I'm doing. It's always about, you know, what is it? Your network's your net worth is the first. Dan Hill always says that. The second thing is know your market. And the third thing is for me, always put yourself in the shoes of the customer, the client or the charity. My starting point, so when I was standing in the middle of your getting off this site was, I'm standing here as a customer. Yeah. What's the customer journey look like? And that never changes for me. Interesting. Okay, great. So for those that want to follow your journey, okay, I know that you're on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how much you are on other socials, but could you maybe just give us an idea of where people can find you? Yeah, you literally will get me on LinkedIn. That, that's I'm generally that's, on LinkedIn. That's the place. Yay. That's it. Every day. Fantastic. I think with socials, sometimes you can just spread yourself too thin and be not ineffective on any of them. Okay, brilliant. So thanks so much for joining us, Jay. It's been really interesting. I just love your perspective. And it's not just one perspective. It's three-dimensional. There's all different areas that you've been involved in. I'm really looking forward to seeing how your journey progresses from here. I know that your residential side is developing well, but the commercial side is a bit, obviously, I'm really interested in. It's going to be great to see how things go. So thanks so much for joining us, Jay. You're welcome. Thank you. Brilliant. For anyone that would like to find out any more about Jay, I will put his information on the show notes. You'll be able to get his LinkedIn address there, as it were. And if anyone has any questions they would like to ask, or indeed any thoughts they have, don't forget you can join us on the Facebook group. So it's the usual W's, facebook.com forward slash commercial property investor. On there, you'll get on the page. Just need to click on join the group, answer a couple of questions like, are you definitely interested in commercial property? And then we will let you in the group and you can share some questions you might have for Jay or indeed the community that are in there, peer-to-peer support in there with other people that are also on the commercial investing journey. So thanks very much for listening and we look forward to speaking to you all again very soon. 